Father, we ask that you would teach us truth this morning. Lord, we confess often being like Eve and trusting our own judgment that just results in our believing lies. Lord, help our unbelief. Thank you that you're drawing us and strengthening us, that even our trust in you is a gift that you give us by the restoring power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Um, I'm sure you've experienced the fact that if there are unbelievers who've never set foot in a church, there's one thing that they're pretty sure they know is in the Bible. And it's this. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. And anytime a Christian says anything about sin, we get that thrown back up at us. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured by you. Well, that's true. Jesus said that. That's in Matthew chapter 7. But later in the same book in Matthew, Jesus has that whole church discipline thing about confronting people that are involved in sin and if they don't respond to correction to be put out of the body. And then, in fact, later in that same chapter, Jesus comes back and says, you should forgive others. Well, that comes up in other letters, too. I mean, it's not surprising since the teacher says that, that the apostles he sent out said the same thing. In the book of James, James says in the middle of his letter to the Jews that are scattered in all the foreign countries around Israel, he tells them, don't criticize or condemn others. And then the last two sentences in his letter, he's saying if somebody's doing wrong, go to them. Talk to them about it. Uh, Paul does the same thing. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians that we call 1 Corinthians, he actually rebukes them because they have not confronted a guy involved in ongoing sin in the church. He rebukes them for not having put him out of the fellowship. And yet again, Paul, later in that letter... He's talking about why should other people judge him. He says, um, he says, why should I be condemned by someone else for doing what I think is not a sin? He says it more strongly in Romans when he writes his letter to the Romans. He says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Therefore, let us not judge one another. So on the other hand, we don't judge anyone, but we're supposed to confront each other with our sin. And you can understand how unbelievers on the outside looking in would be scratching their heads, you know. And saying, well, how does all that go together? And in fact, we as believers sometimes have trouble putting all that together. Well, fortunately, the Lord has given us quite a bit of instruction about this. And it's not actually that complicated. I will confess that sometimes it's hard to accept what Jesus tells us. And it's hard to do it. But it's not that complicated to understand it. So what we're going to do for three Sundays today, next Sunday, and the following Sunday is we're going to be looking at what God tells us about how we should think about other people in their sin. If we're seeing other people in sin in their lives, how should we think about that and what, if anything, should we say or do about it? And we're going to do that in three steps. Today, what we're mainly going to look at is what God tells us about how we should view ourselves and our position in God's eyes relative to our sin. We're going to see what does God think in general about people 
And how does he deal with people and their sin? And I would include us in people. That's what we're going to learn. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to listen specifically to what God tells us about how we should think about other people and their sin and what, if anything, we should say or do about it. And then the third Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to listen to what God tells us about how we should think about situations uh, where some believers think that something is wrong, God has said not do it, and some believers honestly think God said it's all right. Um, we imagine a situation where I look at Carol's life and I think he's got sin in his life and I think he's doing something wrong, but he thinks, well, David, I think as I look at the Scripture, I don't think it is. Or it might be the other way around. Maybe he looks at my life and says, David, I think that's something God's prohibited. And I say, oh, I look at the Scripture and I don't think so. Well, fortunately, the Lord gives us a good bit of instruction about that. And we'll look at that the third Sunday because that situation, in fact, comes up all the time. And the Lord knows it does. And he gives us direction about that. So, let's start Today, today, what we're going to do is we're going to listen to what God tells us about what He thinks we should know about people in sin and how He deals with people and their sin, because that includes us. <laughs> this is kind of the version of when Jesus tells people, before you worry about the speck in the other person's eye, what do you need to do? You need to get the log out of your own eye. Well, that's what this Sunday is, is we're going to let the Lord tell us how we should think about people in sin in general and in ourselves in particular. So the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at the lives of three men in the Bible, Moses, David, and Solomon. And we're going to see how God deals with them because the whole reason God's given us this record in this story is because as God tells us, this is what I've done, this is how I work, this is what people are doing, this is how we interact with them. God is teaching us about who He is and who we are and what our relationship to Him should be and what it is and how He deals with us. He's, he's teaching us. That's how God teaches us. Now, all three of these guys that we're going to look at, Moses, David, and Solomon, all three of them are commonly regarded as really good guys. And in fact, they're, they're regarded as heroes in the Bible. And each one of them, the reason I picked these three in particular, is each of them receives a very, very remarkable commendation in the Scriptures about their character. They each get commended in a way that no one else has been. And yet, all three of them, their life is just full of sin and failure. How does God deal with them? What does God show us about that? So, before we start with Moses, before we start with Moses, we kind of need to get the setting here. Because remember, Moses, the story of Moses didn't just fall out of space, disconnected from anything. Uh, he's one episode in a continuing story in which God reveals what's going on here. And so, let's review briefly. You'll remember that we start in the beginning, that God creates everything. So the whole creation belongs to him. He has authority over it. He knows how it works. And he puts man on earth, man and woman, and he gives them uh, everything that they need. And he gives them instructions. And he tells them, all right, you 
live, grow, uh, and you rule over the world according to the instructions I've given you. You rule over the world. But you know that what they did is they, fa- they rebelled, didn't they? What was that rebellion? Eve basically decided she knew better than God. She didn't believe that what God said was true. She believed the lie that Satan said. And so she decided that she was going to choose for herself what was right or wrong. And Adam went along with it. And then that continues on through the first few pages of Genesis with their son Cain, their descendant Lamech. It just spirals downhill with people rebelling against God's truth and His instruction, His authority, and trying to take control of things themselves. And so what God does in each stage is He drives people away in judgment. He sent Adam and Eve away from the garden and He made life hard for them. He drove Cain even farther away to where he couldn't even grow crops in his farm. Things spiral downhill until finally God says, I'm just going to wipe wipe the slate clean and start over. And so he sends the flood, but he provides a way of deliverance from that judgment for Noah and his wife, his three sons and all of their wives. Um, And so he says, okay, I'm going to flood the world. Build a boat, and you'll survive the flood. Well, Adam and his family believed God, so they built a boat, and they come out the other end. And then what happens to Noah and his family and their descendants? Same thing again. Spirals downhill in their rebellion against God until ultimately all the people are clustered together. And rather than um, spreading out and filling the earth, in submission to God the way they were supposed to. God, in effect, started over. He told Noah and his family after the flood essentially the same thing he had told Adam and Eve. So it's kind of like starting over. But again, same thing happened. They build a tower to try to exalt themselves and take the place of God. And so God brings a judgment down on them. But this time, rather than sending a flood and killing all of them, what he does is he comes down and he confuses the languages, their languages, so that ritibifasi unatim mafaim unafasange singedeo. Ba? Ba? Right? What he did is he came and confused their languages so they couldn't understand each other. Why? It's to frustrate their attempts to work together in the rebellion against God. And so that's where we come to at the end of Genesis chapter 11. That's That whole thing only takes about eight or, nine, eight or nine pages in your Bible, surprisingly, if you look at that. And so that's where we end up, is we end up with a world full of these people groups scattered all over the place that are all in rebellion against God. The first eight or nine pages in your Bible, God is setting the stage saying, this is why the world is in the mess it's in. When you look at the news this morning, you say, man, what is this mess about? That's what it's about. I want to take a moment to point out that God is teaching us something really important in that section. He's teaching us some very important things about Himself. Obviously, that He's the Creator, and it's right that He has the authority over things. He's teaching us that He judges sin. But there's a pattern that emerges here that's really important 
It, and it's so obvious, it's hiding in plain sight. You may not catch the significance of it. You remember he had told Adam and Eve that in the day they sinned, they would die. But they didn't. What we see in this pattern emerging is over and over again, when people rebel against God, He does not normally execute capital punishment immediately. There are occasions in the Scripture when He does that. And we can think of examples, whether it's Ananias and Sapphira or um, Achan or some different people. But typically, God does not do that. Typically, what does God do? Typically, what God will do is banish people or drive them further away from the blessings that they would have had if they remained under His loving care. He pushes them farther and farther away and makes their life harder and harder and more and more frustrating and more and more painful. Now, in Genesis 1 through 11, the text does not tell us explicitly why God does that. But it becomes more apparent later in the story, and eventually God does tell us why He does that. It's because He's gracious. He is giving people an opportunity to recognize their sin and to repent and come back. He's trying to wake them up. You know, in my flesh, when I want to wake people up from what they've done wrong, I want to whack them upside of the head with a two before. But when I'm wanting to do it, it's just because I'm mad and I want revenge. God is trying to give people an opportunity to recognize their sin and repent. So this is the situation we've got at the end of Genesis chapter 11 is the world is full of all these people groups that are in rebellion against God. So the next step is God initiates a plan. He has a plan to deal with this. And what he does is he, he chooses one particular guy named Abram. And he says, I want you to come out of that sinful, rebellious people group. And I'm going to give you a place. And I'm going to have your descendants become a great nation. And you're going to be different from all of those other nations. I'm going to have, you are going to be my people and I will be your God and I will guide you and you will trust and follow me. In Genesis 12, God says to Abram, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I'll show you and I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he's not just blessing Abraham. He said, God says, I have a plan that through your family I'm going to bless the whole world, including all of those rebellious nations all over the world. Now, God doesn't tell us yet what that blessing is or how he's going to do it. That will unfold over about the next 2,000 years after he calls Abram. But he calls Abraham and sets that up. So this is almost like a third start. God started with Adam and Eve, and they and their family failed and rebelled against God. Then he wiped the slate clean, started over with Noah and his three sons and all of their wives, started over. Okay, I'm going to populate the world with you, and I'll be your God. Once again, they spiraled and failed. 
So God scattered the nations. So now he calls Abraham and he says, okay, through you, you're going to be my people and I'm going to bless the world through you. And what happens through the rest of Genesis? The same thing. Abraham, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, the great-grandkids, it just spirals out of control. All of those guys are at least as big as sinners as everyone else that came before. That's really a pretty sordid story when you read all of that. Um, you know, they're, they're like the poster children for dysfunctional family. I'm sure they would be a reality TV show if, there was, if they had such a thing. But really, it's, it's a really terrible, terrible thing as you read through there and their failure. But again, we see a pattern emerge. We see a pattern emerge about how God deals with people. Their sin just spirals out of control. The lying, the cheating, the plotted murders, the actual murders, selling their brother into slavery, the sexual sin is just, it's, it's amazing. And yet what we find in the face of all that sin is God says, I made a promise. I'm going to bless your family and I'm going to bless the world through you. And no matter how unfaithful those people are, and they are incredibly unfaithful, God says, I made a promise and I keep my word. And what God does is over and over, He intervenes in their lives to rescue them from their own despicable sinful behavior. When you read through here, it's real easy to try to see these guys as heroes of the faith. In fact, when Carrie and I, when our children were little, people knew we were religious and went to church, so relatives would give us children's Bible books and stuff, you know. And children's Bible books always try to make these characters out to be heroes. May I suggest if you read this, that's not the conclusion you're going to come up with. The conclusion you're going to come up with when you read this is that God is a hero. Every time Abraham or Jacob or Joseph, any time any of them ever expresses any faith or trust in the Lord at all, any time they do something right, it's because God, on His initiative, has been working in their life to turn them around and draw them to Himself in spite of their recurring rebellion. So we see another pattern that reveals God's graciousness. His ultimate judgment of a capital punishment usually does not occur immediately. He just sends challenges in people's lives to remind them that they're not the Creator. And we see also in Abraham's family that God is constantly at work in individuals' lives to turn them around and draw them back to Himself. So... That's the stage. We're beginning to see now how God works with people. And now we're going to look at the lives of three people in particular where we're going to see God do this sort of thing. Um, But first we want to make a connection before we get to Moses where he comes from. Uh, When God called uh, Abraham and promised him that his family would become a great nation and be blessed, he makes this weird little prediction in chapter 15, 
he tells Abraham, you know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Man, I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know if the Keeners would feel like that's a really great blessing for our for the Keener family. The Lord's going to bless us. But by the way, first we're going to be slaves for, in a foreign country for 400 years. <laughs> Doesn't sound like much of a blessing, but we'll see. Actually, it is. They'll be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they'll serve, and afterward they'll come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here to this land I'm promising you. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So, lesson here. The Lord has a plan to bless this family, but he says, there's a rocky road ahead. But don't think my plan has failed. It's all part of the plan. All right. So as you know, that's what happened at the end of, um, after about 220 years after this, the, his great-great-grandchildren his great are all in Egypt, and they're there for about another 400 years and end up slaves. Well, the 400 years has gone by, and the Lord says, all right, it's time. I made a promise to Abraham and I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to have the, get the people out of Egypt and take them back to the promised land and bless them the way I said I would. And so you know that one of the ways that the Lord does that, one of the things He does is He calls a guy named Moses to lead the people out. So we're going to look at Exodus chapter 3. And what we're going to see about Moses, he's the first of these three guys that we're going to look at. And for each of these three guys, what we're going to see is that God calls them and singles them out. God is the one who takes the initiative to call them and to equip them for the work that he's given them to do. And God is even going to commend them as being pretty remarkable people. But at the same time, we're going to see that these guys all fell short and sinned. And how did God deal with them? All right, so in Exodus chapter 3, um, I'm going to skip down to verse 10. You guys know the story... Um, Moses sees the burning bush and he goes up to it and the Lord speaks to him. And in verse 10 it says, Therefore come now and I'll send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, Well, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So we see Moses was not out looking for God. He didn't come up and volunteer and say, Hey, God, I've got a plan. I can help your people. No, God is the one who took the initiative and called Moses. And then there's a long conversation here. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to see that it is God is the one 
who provides Moses with what he needs to do what he gave him to do. Chapter 4, line 1, Then Moses said, By the way, up until this point, this whole thing has been Moses arguing with God. Then Moses said, Well, what if they won't believe me or listen to what I say? For they're going to say, The Lord hasn't appeared to you. Well, the Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? And Moses said, It's a staff. So God said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. (laughs) And Moses fled from it. I've known a few sick people that like snakes. (laughs) I don't. I flee from snakes. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So I'll give Moses credit here. He did do it. So Moses stretched out his hand, and he caught it and became a staff that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And as you read the entire story of Moses all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, what you see over and over and over again is any time Moses manages to accomplish anything good, it's because God gave him the ability to do it. It's not because Moses was all that special. I think sometimes we can get this idea, and and I confess having done this myself, of knowing certain unbelievers, especially public figures, and because of certain qualities they have, I think, man, just imagine if he became a believer, what he could do for the Lord. And on the one hand, there's a legitimacy to that, but on the other hand, I think it's easier, it's easy for us to fall, for us to fall into the trap of thinking that God kind of needs our help. You know, like God's really lucky to have me on his team because I happen to like working with languages. And so I work in translation, you know, and well, I've got these strengths, Lord. I think I could really help you with that. Where did any strengths I have come from? And we look at Moses. Did Moses choose to be born an Israelite? In to, uh, did he choose to be born a Jew in 2000 B.C.? Did he choose to be born at a time when the pharaohs were telling the Jewish ladies that if they have sons, they have to leave them, what's called exposure, just leave them out and let them die? Did uh, did Moses choose to have his uh, family make a little basket and shove them out in the river? And did he choose for the pharaoh's daughter to find him there and take him and raise him in the palace and school him and all the wisdom of the Egyptians? He didn't choose any of that. Any of the qualities and abilities and skills that he may have had, it's because God put him in that situation and prepared him for what he was, what God was going to want him to do. But there is a remarkable commendation. Look in Numbers 12. You're probably familiar with this. There's a remarkable thing in here. And if you want to be amused, get some commentary sometime and read what they say about this. The setting here is while Moses is leading the Israelites through the wilderness, as you can imagine, there's always, there's always a few in the crowd that, that chafe under authority. I'm one of those people. I chafe under authority. Here, it's his own brother and sister. Chapter, 
chapter 12, line 1, it says, Miriam and Aaron, that's his brother and sister, they spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he'd married, uh, for he'd married a Cushite woman. And they said, here it is, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? Who do you think you are, Moses? You think you're so special? But then here's this comment, line three. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? By the way, I kind of misquoted it in your notes here. Carrie saw it, but she didn't say anything to me about it, and I saw it later. I said he was the most humble man that ever lived. Actually, what it says, he's the most humble man on earth, so I don't want to exaggerate. He was at least the most humble man on earth at the time. Well, that's an amazing statement, isn't it? Um, that's just not said about anyone else in the Scriptures. That's an amazing commendation. But Moses was not perfect. Skip on to Numbers 20. In Numbers 20, we're going to pick up in verse 8. He's leading the people through the wilderness, and once again they're complaining. They complain the whole time. Most of the time they were in the wilderness, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They thought it was better to be a slave in Egypt than to be out there in desert with God leading them. So they've been complaining about not having enough water that they liked. And so in verse 8, God tells Moses, You take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, and you and your brother Aaron, you assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You will thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you've not believed me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. This incident is going to be mentioned several times through the rest of the Pentateuch. Uh, Moses is going to refer to it, that what's happened here is the most humble man on earth expressed his arrogance in saying, shall we give you water? And doing what he did in his anger, rather than following the Lord's instruction, pounding the rock with his rod. And God said, that is not good. And there's going to be consequences. The people are going to go into the promised land. You are not. 
You're going to die on this side of the river. That seems kind of harsh, but really when we think about, if you read the story and you allow the writer, who is probably Moses, (laughs) to reveal what his character was really like, Moses was really kind of a volatile guy. I'm not going to pound the pulpit on this. Some commentaries will vary about some of these things. But as you read through Moses' life, uh, we start out early in his life where he murders an Egyptian and hides him in the sand. And I'm going to call it murder. Then when he's found out in fear, he flees to Egypt. Then when God calls him, there's a long argument where he's very reluctant and he actually argues with God over several points uh, to the degree that God actually gets angry with him. And it says it, basically, stop arguing with me, Moses. I'm God. In anger, in a rage, Moses shattered the first pair of tablets of the Ten Commandments. God didn't tell him to do that. He just flew in a rage and smashed them. It doesn't say one way or the other whether it was wrong, but we're seeing a pattern in him. All through this time, Abraham vacillates between trusting in God and interceding for the people. And on the other hand, man, he complains nearly as much as they do. God, why do you put me in charge of this sorry lot? They're your people. You take them. I'm tired of them. This one's good. (laughs) Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Just a few pages over. This is one of my favorite things. I love Moses. You know what Deuteronomy is. He's finally led the people through the wilderness. They've wandered around for 40 years. And now they're camped right across the river. They're just about to go across the river. And what Deuteronomy is, is Moses just goes over the whole story again. Here's how we got here. Here's what needs to happen next. But in the light, in the context of telling that story, I love this chapter 1, verse 37. He's talking about why he doesn't get to go over. Verse 37. The Lord was angry with me also on your account, saying, not even you shall enter it. He actually does that two or three times in the rest of Deuteronomy. He says, I don't get to go into the promised land and it's your fault. So there's a question here. We've got this commendation of Moses that says that he's the most humble man on earth. But I'd say compared to other people, Moses was the most humble person on earth. But by God's standard, Moses was an arrogant sinner who deserved punishment. Compared to me, he was a pretty humble guy. But he was a sinner who deserved punishment. Where does that put me? Where does that put you? What we see throughout this story is God working graciously in Moses' life. God initiated and called Moses in the first place. God very graciously equipped him with all the things that he would need to do the tasks that God had given him. And in the face of Moses' over and over and over, his disbelief and his rebellion is just being cranky. What does God do? 
There were times when there were consequences, but always God is graciously turning Moses around and bringing him back. That's how God works in Moses' life. Well, we're going to go on to David now, but we need to know something first. Just as God had told Abraham, your people are going to spend 400 years enslaved in Egypt, uh, he also gives a warning to Moses about what's going to happen to the people next. If you look in uh, Deuteronomy 17, I'm going to read some verses here. The plan is the Jews are going to be God's people and He will be their king. He will be their leader. But before they even get in the land... God tells Moses in line 14, this is God having Moses speak to the people. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. And then he gives the qualifications for them. Uh, Verse 16, he says, Now these kings shall not multiply horses for himself. He shall not cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And he shall not multiply wise for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So, as God has Moses the most humble man on earth, lead the people in the promised land, he says something about what's going to happen later. When you guys ask for a king, these are the rules. All right, Moses leads the people. uh, I'm sorry, Moses dies on the east side of the river. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. And under Joshua's leadership and then under the various judges, they conquer the land, and so over the next 400 years, again, same thing, repeated failure, one after another. The people rebel against God. He sends difficulty and hardship to try to get them to turn around and repent. They'll repent, and then they'll sin again. They'll repent and sin again, repent and sin again. We don't have to look at our children and grandchildren to recognize that pattern, do we? I mean, we can see it in ourselves. This goes on for 400 years until finally the people say, this isn't working. We want a king like the nations to rule over us, which is what God said would happen. What's God's response? God is not happy about that because he says, you're basically rejecting me. The whole plan was for Abraham's clan to be different from the nations and I would be their leader. And what you're saying is, you don't want to be my people. You don't want to be different. You want to be like them. Well, what God does is He says, I'm going to let you have what you want. I'm going to let you have kings. I remember as a young believer reading in Romans and being being really struck in Romans chapter 1 that throughout the Scripture, often one of the most severe judgments that God puts on people is to let them have what they want. Think about that. As one of my high school teachers would say, put that in your pipe and smoke it for a while. 
what you want is probably pretty destructive. Anyway, so they ask for kings. So we need to have in our mind that the fact that the people are even having kings is on the one hand, God had planned it from the beginning, but also it's a result of their sinful desire to be like the nations and have a human king over them. So, we come to David, and we're going to see the same pattern that we see with Moses. We're going to see that David, uh, that God is the one who reaches out, initiates, calls David to be his, equips him for his work, and he gives him a very high commendation. And yet we're going to see that David's life is full of sin. Let's see his call in 1 Samuel 1 Samuel 13, we see the plan to call him. His name doesn't come up yet. In chapter 13, verse 13, uh, the prophet Samuel says to King Saul, the first king, You've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would, now, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. In other words, your line would have been the ongoing dynasty. But you've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your, uh, for now the, oh, <laughs> the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord, kept what the Lord commanded you. And so as we go then on to chapter 16, we see that David is actually singled out by the Lord through Samuel and he is anointed as king. And in 16, down in verse 13, it says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And again, through all of the chapters and chapters and chapters of the story of David, what we see is God is the one who initiated the call of David, brought him to this position, and it is God who graciously equips and empowers David to do the work that he wants him to do. And he even has this commendation that David is a man after God's own heart. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually quotes this verse in his first missionary journey in one of his sermons. Uh, he quotes this verse and he says that what that means is that basically David did what God wanted him to do. Did he? Well, he did sometimes. <laughs> he did part of the time. But there were times he didn't. Here I have a a place where God confronted David on something that he did. I have there 28, 1 Chronicles 28. Uh, What I'm actually going to do is read 1 Chronicles 22. Both of them refer to the same event. But I'm going to go to 1 Chronicles 22. verses 6 to 10, and then I have a comment about you might want to replace this particular event with another one. In 1 Chronicles 22, when David is king and his kingdom is established, he wants to build a temple for God. God says, no, 
I don't want you to build it. And here's why. Verse 6, he's about to pass the throne on to Solomon. And verse 6, David called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. So because of David's life and what he's done, there's actually going to be a limitation in some of how God wants to use him. Now, after I decided to use this, I have a certain understanding of what's going on in here, but then I began to realize a lot of commentaries don't think this has anything to do with David having done anything wrong. So I'll leave that to you. You can read that. But if you don't like this, we can just look at all the other events where David sinned and God confronted him and there were consequences to it. Um, Some of the things that happened, uh, David had a plan. He had a plan to murder Nabal, uh, basically to take revenge for a a perceived uh, insult. And that was kind of diffused by Nabal's wife. And David attributed that to God having stopped him from doing something wrong. So we kind of dodged a bullet there because God restrained him. But then he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then to try to cover it up, he murdered Bathsheba's wife, uh, husband, Uriah. And then there were consequences of that. God says, brace yourself for this, God says, David, I forgive you, but now hear are the consequences of your sin. File that away. Being forgiven by God does not necessarily mean there are no consequences. Also, at the end of David's life, he takes a census that angers God, and God sends a plague that kills thousands of Israelites. It says he was also angry at the Israelites. And why did David take that census? Well, it was just a pride. So what we see is that while David... Compared to other people, David was a man after God's own heart who did what he said. But by God's standard, David was a rebellious sinner and a repeat offender who deserved punishment. And yet what God did is work graciously in his life. He called him in the first place. He graciously equipped him to do the work he'd given him to do. And we see God very graciously and patiently working with David, just one sin after another, God was working with David to bring him back, to bring him back. Well, we've got one more, Solomon. And again, we see the same pattern. In 1 Kings, In 1 Kings, we see uh, Solomon be called. Um, King David said, I'm going to start reading verse 32. David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came into the king's presence, and the king said to them, 
Take with you the servants of your Lord and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel and blow the trumpets. And so that's what happened. They anoint him. And there's several references to this. This whole thing of Solomon becoming the next king gets kind of fuzzy and you can read the different accounts and the different palace intrigues that occurred with him. But the point of the whole story is God puts him there as king. And he also equips him. Just turn the page to chapter 3. And we're going to see that God uh, commends him. It says in verse 3, Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father. The second half of that verse is pretty amazing, isn't it? Except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. You know what the high places are? It's the pagan altars. We might think that's Incredible that he would do that, but I would suggest that all of us, to some degree, whether even if we're believers, there are times when we sacrifice to the idols of our our world and our culture. Anyway, he does that, and you know the story. God offers uh, to give him whatever it is um, that he might want to ask for, and what Solomon asks for is wisdom good point. He said, God, you've given me the task of ruling over this people, but I don't know how. I need wisdom. Will you give me wisdom? And so God does. God says, hey, good answer. I'm going to answer. I'm going to give you what you wanted. Um, skip down. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12. Behold, I've done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so there's been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. So he commends Solomon and says, Now it is the wisest man that ever lived. He's the wisest man that ever lived. And yet, we know what happened at the end of his reign. And I have a reference there. We won't read it. But First Kings 11 How did his reign end? Well, he had hundreds and hundreds of wives and concubines, most of whom were foreigners. And as you read in the Scripture, God doesn't have a problem with people marrying foreigners. God has a problem with His people marrying people who worship pagan gods and idols. And what happens to Solomon is exactly what God had warned uh, Moses, what happened to the people, that when the kings married these foreign wives, their heart was pulled away from the Lord, and he built temples for foreign gods and sacrificed to them. And we will see in First Kings chapter 11 the consequences of that. Verse 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and he commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he didn't observe. 
what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you've done this and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes while I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I'll give it to your servant. But I'll not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it away tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jew- Jerusalem which I have chosen. So Solomon's dynasty, rather than ruling over the entire nation Israel, now only has the one tribe. And as you know, for the rest of the history of Israel, they are a divided kingdom after after his son Rehoboam becomes king. So what do we see? What do we see? That compared to other people, Solomon was the wisest person that ever lived. But by God's standards... Solomon was a foolish sinner who deserved punishment. And yet, God worked graciously in Solomon's life. God very graciously called Solomon in the first place to make him his and use him in the building of his kingdom. God graciously equipped him to do what God wanted him to do. And in the face of Solomon's recurring sin and rebellion, God was continually and graciously working to turn him around And bring him back. And all along, God is being faithful to his promise. Uh, He's saying, I'm still going to fulfill the promise I made to Abraham. I'm still going to fulfill the promise that I made to your father, David. Because you guys may be unfaithful, but I'm not. We can trust God to do what he said he's going to do. So we see these three guys. Um, the most humble man on earth, a man after God's own heart, and the wisest man that ever lived, continually fail. And yet God continually and graciously works to bring them back to Himself. If that's the case with these guys, what about you and me? I sometimes, you know, I might think I'm a pretty good guy compared to Noel, maybe. (laughs) He may think he's a pretty good guy compared to me, but you know, or Don, you know, Don may think he's pretty good compared to me, but I haven't set the bar very high, have I? What about God? Read this story and God is showing. I want to, God is saying, I want to show you what I'm like. You guys are in pretty bad shape and you need help, but that's what I'm here for. I'm going to help you. You know, this morning, if you feel like, hey, I've failed in God. I can't stand in front of God. I can't stand in front of His judgment. God says, good, that's step one. You understand that. Step two, I've done something about that. I sent my son, and he took the punishment for your sin. But he's not still dead. I raised him from the dead, and he's right here at my right hand. And if you trust him, I will raise you. I'll forgive you and raise you up, and you can have an eternity with me. If you haven't done that, this morning, would you just tell God, God, I agree with you. I need help. And thank you for sending your son. And I put my life in your hands. And thank you that you'll give me life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you. What an amazing story. No person could come up with this. We, could, we would all come up with the same story Eve did and Lamech and the people at the tower. 
we would all exalt ourselves. But we want to exalt you as a gracious Savior. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.